How you doing, Miss? JJ, it's one thing to wear your dog collar, but when it turns into a noose, I'd rather have my freedom. A man in jail is always for freedom. Except if you'll excuse me, JJ, I'm not in jail. You're blind, Mr. Magoo. This is the crossroads for me. I won't get Kello. Not for a lifetime past at the polo grounds. Not if you serve me Cleopatra on a plate. And that is why you put your hands on me. JJ, please. Susie tried to show us. Smith's favorite the movie. It's a sweet Tony, smell of success. JJ, please. Memorize the whole movie. <laughs> He's younger guys, I tell you. Crazier than we were. From Chicago, this is the unenthusiastic critic. A podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today to conjugate me a verb is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the unenthusiastic critic. Hello. On this week's episode, Nakia and I are celebrating Noir-vember with her first viewing of one of my favorite films noir, Alexander McKendrick's Sweet Smell of Success from 1957. Did you make a little sound when I said Noir-vember? I just don't, I really don't like that. Is it portmanteau? Is that the correct term? Sure. I just don't like it. Just aesthetically as a word, I, I you don't just hate like it. it. And I really don't like it, how it rolls off the tongue there. Okay, well, this is our third year honoring Noir-vember. Mm-hmm. Uh, the term was coined by professional film fanatic Maria Gates. She came up with the hashtag in 2010 during her own project to catch up on a bunch of films noir that she hadn't seen. Gates watched and tweeted about some 45 movies in the month of November in 2010 and launched a month-long celebration of film noir that is still going strong today. We are not so ambitious. I think that's a lot for us. But we do like to dedicate at least one week every November to noir. In 2010, we watched a femme fatale double bill of Double Indemnity and Body Heat. And last year, we watched the Bogey Bacall classic, The Big Sleep. We've also off-schedule, if you will, watched other noir and noir-adjacent classics like The Maltese Falcon, Sunset Boulevard, and most recently, Devil in a Blue Dress. And I think you actually liked all of those movies. I vaguely remember all of those okay, movies. This is the but... problem, is you don't retain anything that we do. But yes, I, I do remember. I don't have any immediate reactions to any of those as you named them off. So yeah, well, I'm sure I you went back and listened to those episodes prior to this. I do not listen to any of our episodes. <laughs> I cannot do it. So What do you mean you can't do it? I can't. Uh, I spew bullshit, and then I walk <laughs> away from it. I don't go and inspect the shit. So it's just... <laughs> okay. Well, we did a fairly deep dive into what makes something a noir in our episode on the Maltese Falcon. Uh, So we're not going to do that again here. Folks can go check that episode out and marvel at how much better our sound quality has gotten since then. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was our third or fourth episode, and I knew even less about how to do this than I do now. Mm. So, But Nikia, maybe you can just, you know, for our listeners, give us a quick refresher course on film noir. Probably can't do that. No. Um, So it is a cinematic aesthetic in both content and style uh, that is usually marked by it's usually like a crime drama. Mm -hmm. There is a fair amount of cynicism on the part of the lead characters. Uh, There's usually a woman who's, you know, there's always a woman making poor choices. They tend to be pretty fatalistic in nature and then visually they have a style. It's a lot of sort of shadow play. Yeah. That was way better than I thought you would do, actually. <laughs> Knowing how you just block these things out of your mind. I just blocked them out. What I expected you to say was, the plots make no damn sense. Oh, and also because that. that seems to be also your takeaway from, yes. from a lot of these movies. Also that is that the plots are intricate to the point of... Labyrinthine. and Just <laughs> indecipherable nonsense. <laughs> but that seems to not be the point, so... Yeah, no, I think that was a pretty good summary. Okay. And it's it's one of those terms that is used several different ways, because it's sometimes they're talking about it as a style of Mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a genre. Sometimes it's almost a worldview. In terms of genre, we're usually talking about some kind of hard-boiled 
crime movie or mystery story. Stylistically, it's usually high contrast black and white cinematography inspired by German expressionism, full of skewed or extreme camera angles. And thematically, I think we are dealing with, as you said, a a certain nihilism. Uh, We're usually dealing with what the Film Noir Foundation calls the vivid commingling of lost innocence, doomed romanticism, hard-edged cynicism, desperate desire, and shadowy sexuality. Mm. So, you know, ethically compromised characters, morally indifferent universe, fatalism, shattered ideals, doomed love, all the things that make a story great. And I'll add one final descriptor, which I think is a brilliant observation from the great Roger Ebert, who called film noir the most American film genre, because no society could have created a world so filled with doom, fate, fear, and betrayal, unless it were essentially naive and optimistic. And I think all of that is present in this movie today, even though the two main characters are arguably two of the most cynical and amoral people ever captured on film. Uh, What do you know about Sweet Smell of Success? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing? No. Okay. So the first thing to tell you is that this is not a stereotypical film noir, in that there's very little actual old-fashioned crime in it. It doesn't take place in the world of private eyes and gangsters and murderers, but in the high-pressure world of the New York City publicity industry. Burt Lancaster's character, J.J. Hunsecker, is an insanely powerful newspaper gossip columnist, and Tony Curtis's Sidney Falco is a hungry press agent trying to climb the ladder of success. Screenwriter Ernest Lehman wrote this as a short story, first published in Colliers, and then expanded it into a novella published in Cosmopolitan, based in part on his experience as an assistant to press agent Irving Hoffman at a time when one of the most powerful and dangerous men in the country was newspaper columnist and radio personality Walter Winchell. Winchell had tremendous power, and he used it ruthlessly to destroy people he didn't like. As Sam Kashner writes in Vanity Fair, at the height of his popularity in the late 30s, 50 million people, two-thirds of American adults, read Winchell's syndicated column and listened to his Sunday night radio broadcast. Winchell's special brand of nastiness is the evil heart of Sweet Smell of Success. The rights to the story were acquired by Burt Lancaster's production company, Hecht Hill Lancaster. Several actors were attached for the juicy role of J.J. Hunsecker. Lehman had wanted Orson Welles, but Lancaster decided he would play the part himself. Tony Curtis lobbied hard for and got the role of the grasping press agent, Sidney Falco, which the studio who owned his contract didn't want him to do because they worried it would ruin his image. Neither of these, both Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, were not known for darker, serious fare. They were sort of Hollywood heartthrobs. Mm-hmm. And that may explain why this movie was not more successful than it was, because their fans were not prepared to see them in these sorts of roles. Got it. Ernest Lehman had sold the rights to Lancaster's company on the condition that he could direct, something the producers later said they never had any intention of letting him do. Instead, they brought in British director Alexander McKendrick, who was known for ealing comedies like The Lady Killers. Lehman was still attached as writer because they actually started shooting before they had a finished screenplay. But for reasons we'll discuss, Lehman ended up leaving the picture with health problems, and they brought in Clifford Odets. I don't know if you know anything about Odets. The The, name doesn't sound familiar to me. The easiest point of reference is to say that the Coen brothers loosely based Barton Fink on Clifford Odets. Okay. This was a guy who was a hero of the radical left, the champion of the working class, hugely successful in the beginning of his career. At one point, he had five plays on Broadway simultaneously. Then, like Barton Fink, he went out to Hollywood chasing the money and ended up writing some not very illustrious screenplays and his career sort of deteriorated. Uh, He also became a reluctant but cooperative witness for the House Un-American Activities Committee. He named names, and so his reputation had suffered for that as well. Anyway, Odets came in and... He basically kept the story, but rewrote almost every word. He was rewriting on the fly. Uh, McKendrick later said, One of the most frightening experiences in my life was to start shooting in the middle of Times Square with an incomplete script. There never was a final shooting script for the movie. It was all still being revised, even on the last day of principal photography. It was a shamble of a document. The hysteria of that production was the edge of fear. You're working from moment to moment. 
And there's a lot more to say about the making of this movie and the players involved, but I'm going to save that for after we watch the movie because I think some of it would bias you. Okay. Uh, and none of it's that important, but I do think it's interesting because this film is such a weird, almost accidentally great movie. It's just this confluence of insanely talented people coming together in total chaos and a lot of conflict, but producing something great. The film was not a success. It completely flopped in 1957. Partially as a result of that, Lancaster's production company went out of business a couple of years later. A few years after that, the director, McKendrick, basically left the industry. He took a job, a teaching job at CalArts and stayed there the rest of his life. So this is this again, this movie is just a weird anomaly, but it's has come to be acknowledged as this stone cold pitch black classic and generally regarded as some of the best work any of these people ever did. It's got fantastic cinematography by the great James Wong Ho. It's got a great score by Elmer Bernstein, Lancaster and Curtis, both do career best work. And I think almost every line of Lehman and Odette's screenplay is quotable and widely quoted. The film has a 98% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, which literally means there's just one cranky bastard out there who didn't much like it, and it's on just about every list of the greatest films of all time you want to look at. It was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress. Filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Steven Soderbergh, the Coen brothers, Stephen Frears, Spike Lee, Cameron Crowe, Barry Levinson, and Paul Thomas Anderson have all cited the film's influence on their work or included homages to it in their own movies. Uh, I don't know. You you have a tendency to forget (laughs) movies. Do you remember when we watched Diner? Yes. Okay. Do you remember? There's a random character in that movie. He's sort of a background character who wanders around just speaking lines from this movie. I do remember that. Yes. That's that's all he says is lines from Sweet Smell of Success. (laughs) So... I don't really know what you're going to make of it. It's, on the one hand, you generally like movies with great black and white cinematography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you like movies with sharp, slightly bitchy dialogue, I think. Okay. On the other hand, you're not a big fan of amoral, reprehensible, misogynistic white men. Yeah. So I think this one could go either way. Okay. Any Any predictions? I have no idea at this point, no. All right, so we're going to go watch it. For those of you watching along at home, Sweet Smell of Success is currently available to rent on iTunes and Amazon. And really, if you haven't seen it, it's a good one. When we get back, we will discuss Sweet Smell of Success. Burt Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker, world-famed columnist whose gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the kid who had ideas about taking over. But we happen to know I'm your star pupil. Because I reflect back to you, your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. (laughs) Don't turn your back on him. You might find a knife in it. This is their story. And that of the big shots and big names who worship the sweet smell of success. Along Broadway. Throughout Hollywood. Down Wall Street, on Capitol Hill, sweet smell of success. And we're back. During the break, Nikia and I watched Sweet Smell of Success. Nikia, this is where I usually, or often, insert the opinions of professional film critics. But since this is noir November, <laughs> I thought I would search the hashtag for Twitter users' reactions to this movie. Mm-hmm. So this is just a few random tweets I, I selected after searching the hashtag. Uh, Maria Gates herself says she always rewatches Sweet Smell of Success on the last day of November, and she says its protagonist, Sidney Falco, is her favorite rat bastard. Uh, Kev Reynolds at Kevatron 500 says Sweet Smell of Success is one of his all-time favorite films. Pitch black in tone, beautifully acidic dialogue, and two great performances by Lancaster and Curtis as two of the most amoral leads in cinema history. At Genre Film Addict says, Almost feels wrong to be so captivated by men so crooked that the concept of integrity is alien. Men best described as moral black holes and bloodthirsty reptilian bastards as they plot to destroy sweet, banal innocence. And then there's this one, which I think captures the other way this conversation could go. Steve Yeager at Steve Yeager says... 
Today's November selection, sweet smell of success. Gross. These people are gross. I feel gross. Does it get better? Nakia, how did sweet smell of success work for you? Uh, I liked it. I thought it was good. <laughs> okay. I mean, it takes, at this point, again, we, you know, we have this conversation nearly every time we do these. It was, you know, the difference between watching it in 2020 versus watching it in the 1950s. Is 1957. That 1957. Mm-hmm. So we've, we're hell and gone past gross. So, <laughs> uh, yes. Wait, are you saying this seems almost innocent and quaint No, I mean, no, it doesn't seem innocent and quaint, but it doesn't make me feel, there's a, there's actually real shit that makes me feel gross. <laughs> okay. So this movie didn't make me feel gross. I mean, we can talk about current events that... <laughs> No, let's let's not. Dirty. Yeah, no, I thought it was good. I love this movie. I think this is a great movie. Mm -hmm. And it is one of those movies, this is one of those movies people talk about that it's not an auteur picture. You can't point to just one person Mm. involved in it and say they're responsible for it. Mm -hmm. It's Lancaster's production and performance, and it's the score by Elmer Bernstein. It's the cinematography by James Wong Ho. It's Clifford Odets and Ernest Lehman's screenplay. It's the director, Alexander McKendrick. It's like everything is just is just working. Yeah, yeah. At the top of its game in this movie. It's not a happy movie, however. <laughs> These are not nice people. No, they are not. A couple of them, I guess, are sort of, but... <laughs> But they are the least interesting characters by far. And maybe even the least interesting actors by far in Mm -hmm. the film. But yeah, no, it's not a happy movie. It is pretty cynical and nihilistic. But I didn't find it depressing. I feel like sometimes with films, they can sometimes... You lose the art of it. Mm -hmm. And I think because this was so heightened and stylistic, it almost made it fun to watch. Terrible people. Terrible doing people, terrible but they things. were doing terrible things at the best of their ability. Of do- so, you know, this is going to be a weird comparison, but uh, Meryl Streep's uh, character in The Devil Wears Prada. Sure. She's a terrible person. Yes, she is. But she's so good at being terrible. <laughs> she's so witty and so smart and so cutting that it's it's a little fun just to be around it. And so that's, I felt okay, so I can see that. Who, who do you think would win in a fight? Her, her character or J.J. Hunsecker? Oh, she would d- destroy. <laughs> <laughs> she would destroy Hunsecker. <laughs> okay, so how do, you, how do you want to talk about this? You'll, you'll talk to me about Sidney Falco. Mm, Sidney. Sidney is, I mean, he is a rat bastard. Sidney is a striving, manipulative, conniving, obsequious... <laughs> Just but wait no he's our hero we're we're rooting for him amoral are, are just not a <laughs> he's not a hero by any stretch of the imagination yeah I mean he's a he's a PR agent that thinks that he deserves better and is pretty much willing to do anything to be better mm-hmm. well I mean this is this is one of those themes that keeps coming up of this and it, it comes up in noir a lot I think it's part of what Roger Ebert was talking about when he talked about that sort of American naivete mm-hmm. it's something you and I talk about in a lot of these movies is just the the guy who thinks he deserves better mm-hmm. the guy who thinks he deserves the good life and really Anything he does to get there is somehow justified. Mm-hmm. Hunsuk is the golden ladder to the places I want to get. Sydney, you make a living. Where do you want to get? We up high somewhere. It's always balmy. Where no one snaps his fingers and says, hey, shrimp, brack the balls. Or, hey, mouse, mouse, go out and buy me a pack of butts. I don't want tips from the kitty. I'm in the big game with the big players. My experience, I can give you in a nutshell, and I didn't dream it in a dream either. Dog eat dog. In brief, from now on, the best of everything is good enough for me. Do we root for this guy? Do we root for anybody in this movie? I'm, I don't root for anyone in this movie. I don't root for. I don't even root for. Um, what is it, Sally? Is that her name? Susan. Susan. Uh, Susan and and Steve Dallas, the lamest jazz player I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Um, so no, I'm not really rooting for anyone in this film. I think there are moments where you see the humanity of Sydney. Like, it seems like he may be feeling a, a little twinge of regret regret in some of his actions. I mean, I do I do think to the extent that there's any kind of moral stakes in this movie, mm-hmm. it's the question of whether he has, or if he will awaken any kind of sliver mm-hmm. of conscience. Yeah. Uh, we can argue about whether he does at the well, end. Well, no, he doesn't. I mean, no. 
Well, he's, let's, let's. Well, he's basically. I mean, it's what's that that saying? It's like we've already determined what you are. Now we're just negotiating price. Uh-huh. So, like that's pretty much Sydney. So it's you know. I do. Th- I do think it's a really good performance by Tony Curtis. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said Clifford Odets gave him the key to the character, which was he said, he said, I don't ever want to see Sydney stop moving. Mm-hmm. Like never sit, never be relaxed, never stop moving, never sit down. And he doesn't. He's he's like a live nerve. Mm-hmm throughout this entire movie, just bouncing around. And I like, in terms of this being a noir, you know, it's not the private detective gangster thing, but structurally it almost is, Mm because it's that same thing of, like, going, moving throughout this underworld, meeting all of these, you know, low-life characters. Uh, They just happen to be journalists. (laughs) Publicists. Publicists, instead of... Politicians. Right. Yeah. Um, All right, well, let's talk about J.J., uh, I love JJ. <laughs> you love JJ. Save for the fact that he's in love with his sister, which is... That's... <laughs> Do we know that? We know that. We know that there... We feel pretty we confident. We feel pretty that confident a... that there was definitely something going on in that house. Um, <laughs> and he has inappropriate feelings for his sister. I mean, JJ, he's just... A, it's such an interesting character. And I imagine it was very fun to play. That scene where he's at... I think it's 21. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting across from, I think it's a senator. Yeah, that's his first scene, yes. The first scene where we meet him. So the whole time, it's maybe, what, 20 minutes or so into the film? Yeah, they've built they've yeah. built up the first appearance of J.J. very well. And so we hear his voice first because <laughs> Sydney calls him on the phone in the restaurant to say, can I, can I just talk to you? Right, he goes to the restaurant right. and then calls him at the restaurant from the restaurant. Yes, and he's like, you know, can you come outside or can I come and talk to you? And, and J.J.'s like, no, and basically is like, you're dead, go you're get dead, buried. You're dead, son, get yourself buried. Um, which is fantastic. And there's a cool... The film is just, it, it is actually really beautifully filmed. Yeah. And in that scene, he's in the phone booth. And where we should be focused on Tony Curtis's character, the focus is actually the, the phone receiver mm. making J.J. even in this sort of disembodied voice is bigger and more important <laughs> yeah. than Sydney is when he's actually there in person. But Sydney goes over to the table anyway and sort of stands directly behind JJ and JJ doesn't even really acknowledge him in any real way other than saying don't you I wish I had a hearing aid so I could sort of just turn it off <laughs> when I didn't say? shut out yeah. the the greedy murmur of little yeah. men and Sydney just stands there and t- he takes it yeah. um and he sits down and he's again he's slightly behind JJ and a little to the side and a little lower and a little lower position but the whole time jj is sitting but still seems to be the biggest person at the table and is still a very dominating figure and he has these glasses on that just sort of cast a shadow over half his face so he just becomes it's a very menacing look for someone who looks he's very straight looking like he's but it's just there's there's just this intensity and in contrast to Falco, he doesn't move much at no. all in the movie. No, he's very still. It's very economical with his words. But anyway, so there's, you know, there's three people at the table with, with sitting with JJ originally. It's a senator, a young woman, and this older gentleman gentleman who's apparently her agent. Yeah, he's unquote. another press agent. But they do this great camera shot where, you know, JJ and the senator have sort of been talking and, and you can tell that he's not believing any of the bullshit. And so he he's basically calling out the situation of the senator's there with the, with the young woman, but it's trying to make it seem like he's not. Right. There's just this great shot where JJ turns to the man that's supposed to be this woman's agent. And so the camera follows him and he goes, you are pretending that you're her agent <laughs> right. when she's actually here with him. Right. And every time he's talking to each person, the camera sort of moves and shifts to that person. Yeah. And you can see their face just sort of fall. This man is not for you, Harvey. And you shouldn't be seen in public with him because that's another part of a press agent's life. They dig up scandal about prominent people and shovel it thin among columnists who give them space. There seems to be some illusion here that escapes me. We're friends, Harvey. We go as far back as when you were a fresh kid congressman, don't we? Why is it that everything you say sounds like a threat? Maybe it's a mannerism, because I don't threaten friends. But why furnish your enemies with ammunition? You're a family man, Harvey, and someday, God willing, you may want to be president. And here you are, out in the open, where any hep person knows that this one is toting that one around for you. Are we kids or what? 
and so it's, it's that just thing a, where he controls the camera, right? Basically. And it's just a it's a really it's visually a very powerful demonstration yeah. of his influence um, and of how how damaging he can be, like mm-hmm. how much the sort of value of his of his words and 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 how he can sort of use those against people. So it was just it was sort of a perfect introduction of a villain. So yeah, I like JJ. Okay, so I mean, basic plot here: JJ has asked Sydney to break up this relationship between JJ's sister, mm-hmm. played by Susan Harrison, and this, as you said, and as I saw someone refer to him as the squarest, whitest <laughs> jazz guitarist who ever lived, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Dallas, played by Martin Milner, and Sydney thought he had broken them up somehow. I forget how, but. It didn't take, Mm -hmm. and that's, he's he's on JJ's shit list. Yes. And he's locked out of the column. Mm -hmm. That's the whole parasitic relationship here is that Sydney feeds items to JJ's column, and JJ gets in publicity for his clients. Mm -hmm. But for, I think, at the beginning of the movie, for five days in a row, JJ has locked him out of the column as punishment for failure. Yes. So you you were suggesting that there's something sinister in the uh, in JJ's desire to protect his innocent younger sister from this guy. Yes, I'm saying that he is in love with his sister <laughs> in a way that is <laughs> creepy as and inappropriate. Shit. Yes. So even if he's never acted on it, he's definitely has it. It's I mean you know JJ's character is a little bit weird because yes, there's definitely it's both ancestral and as a brother but then he's also sort of a father figure to her Mm -hmm. as well so it's a very it's a a difficult relationship but it's clear that you know he basically wants her to be the woman of the house you know and never have never be with a man and never go right there's nothing wrong with this guy as far as we know no he seems absurdly straight laced Mm -hmm. and decent and and decent and honest and treats her well so what objection he could have to her, we mm-hmm. have no no idea, except that he's a man that's going to take his sister away from him. Yeah. This was supposedly loosely based on, we talked about Walter Winchell, mm-hmm. the columnist, his relationship with his daughter, who was named Walda. Oh. Yeah, he named his daughter Walda. <laughs> that's unfortunate for a number of reasons. It is. <laughs> but he supposedly was very controlling of her. He used his influence, which was considerable, with the FBI and the IRS to hound one of her boyfriends Mm -hmm. out of the country. He apparently had her committed at various points in her life. So I don't know. That's what that's supposed (laughs) to be based on anyway. But yeah, it's creepy as hell. Yeah. You know, dear, we're drifting apart, you and I. And I don't like it. A year ago, in your wildest dreams, would you have walked past that door without coming in here to take up the situation with me? Today, I had to call you in. But I'm taking up the situation with you now. Let me finish, dear. You've had your say. Let me have mine. But I haven't said anything, J.J. Susie, I want to help you. You're all I've got in this whole wide world. Uh, Talk to me about Susan. I don't have a whole lot to say about Susan. No. Um, And I don't know if that's good acting or... (laughs) Because, I mean, she plays, she's small pretty much the whole film until you can argue that she gets a little bit, she takes up more space at the end. But she is small and timid and fragile. And, you know, she wears this huge fur coat that basically swallows her. Mm -hmm. That was a gift from, from J.J. She wears it pretty much the entire film. And it's very clearly, it's almost like a mark of ownership of like, she belongs to JJ. Mm -hmm. This is very, you know, it was, it's that sort of thing. And it's even something that lame jazz man mentions (laughs) at some point where he's like, I hate this coat. This is your brother's coat. This coat is your brother, I think he says. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's, she spends most of the film cowering in the shadow of JJ. Mm. I mean, they are both pretty bland characters to the extent that you wonder if that's intentional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but they are com- just completely overshadowed by yeah. everything else yeah. in the movie to the extent that it is like, as you said, it's hard to even root for them. Mm-hmm. You don't look at them and be like, oh, aren't they sweet? I love them. I hope they succeed and are happy together. They seem almost pre-destroyed yeah. at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Which, I mean, this is a pretty 
amoral movie, mm-hmm. where do you think the point of view of the movie is? Is the movie, how harshly is it judging these people, JJ and Sydney, mm. or is it kind of on their side too? I think it's trying to make us sympathetic to Sydney. I think we're supposed that's supposed to be our point of view. Less so JJ. You know, it's hard to even imagine that the intent would be for us to identify with Susan and lame guitar guy because I to the point that I don't even remember his damn name. Um, so his name was Steve. Steve. Okay. Oh my God! It was Susan and Steve. Susan and Steve. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Gag. So. They didn't even, to me, have enough chemistry together right, to make me root for them, really, in any way. Um, and neither of them has a sense of humor. Yeah, they were just they don't sad. They don't get the good dialogue that no. everyone else in the movie gets. So the only thing I felt for Susan was like, oh, you left your brother, now you're going to be poor. <laughs> just like... <laughs> you should have kept the coat and sold it, because you're going to have a hard life. So, yeah, I mean, so I think we are supposed to identify with Sydney. Mm, okay. We're supposed to wrap ourselves in those Tony Curtis eyelashes and follow him all the way to hell. The boy with the ice cream face. Mm-hmm. That's what the cop calls him. I had, I mean, I had, even as much as I had remembered this movie as one of the great cynical movies, I had forgotten how dark it gets. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I think the darkest point is... Rita. Rita. Yeah. You want to talk about Rita? Okay, that's who I... Rita, Jesus, I feel terrible for her. So Rita is a cigarette girl. It's the cigarette girl played by Barbara Nichols. Mm-hmm. So she works at one of the the like clubs that Sydney frequents and where Lame Guitar Players Band plays. Um, <laughs> is it Robert's? Steve. Robinard's? His name is Steve. Something. It doesn't. It's Lame Guitar Boy. And we meet her and she's obviously upset and something has happened and she's trying to tell Sydney what happened right. as a friend. And Sydney is busy Just, doing his manipulations. Right. He's barely listening to her. Pretty much ignoring her and only listening in so far that it could be something that he could use later to yeah. get out of another situation. But she's like, I'm in trouble. And then we finally hear that one of the other sort of PR agents propositioned right. her. Leo. Yeah. And, you know, t- she went back to his place, I believe he's a, it was. He's a columnist. Yeah, right. columnist. Yeah. He, she went back to his place and he, he, was, he was doing a piece on cigarette girls, right. he told her. And it obviously turned out to be he wanted to, you know, do her piece. <laughs> um, and she was like, I wasn't expecting that. That's not you know, what I wanted to do. And Sydney's sort of like, well, what did you expect? You went back with him. And she's like, it was 11 fucking in the morning and he's married and all this other stuff. And she says they're going to fire me because of this. Yeah. She just becomes another card that he can play later. Yeah. And so he... He promises to help her. Right. So yeah, like you said, all Sydney really cares about is, can I use this information? Mm -hmm. So the first thing he does is he goes to the columnist that hit on her, whose name is Leo something, confronts him with his wife Mm -hmm. in another club and tries to blackmail him to put a piece destroying Steve. Right. And I, I actually love the way that scene plays out because it's almost the only example of actual decency in the movie. Mm-hmm. Of actual integrity. Mm-hmm. Because Leo, the columnist, who obviously is a sleaze because he hit on the cigarette girl, but when he realizes Sydney's trying to blackmail him, he calls him on it. He yeah. calls his bluff. He says, you got something to tell my wife? Tell her. Yeah. Well, you want to tell my wife something? What? What, Sydney? I was to tell you that you spilled champagne all Go on, time. I'm waiting. Tell her. What are you getting excited about? What are you, nuts or something? Calm down. Sorry, Laurie. I can't let this man blackmail me. Blackmail? Wants me to print a dirty little smear item in exchange for keeping his mouth shut. About what? Foolishly, Laurie, I, I hope you'll understand it. The cigarette girl, I, I was kidding around with the girl, I mean. I was kidding, she took it seriously. It, a case of bad judgment, bad taste. I'm just sorry, that's all. Your friend, Hunsek. You tell him for me he's a disgrace to his profession. Never mind about my my bilious private life. I run a decent, responsible column. That's the way it stays. Your man prints anything. Use any spice to pepper up his daily garbage. You tell him I said so. Tell him that, like yourself, he's got the scruples of a guinea pig and the morals of a gangster. What do I do now? Whistle stars and stripes forever? What you do now, Mr. Falco, is crow like a hen. You have just laid an egg. Leo? 
This is the first clean thing I've seen you do in years. And Sidney doesn't know what to do with that. He wasn't expecting that. And it's like all these sleazy guys, and then there's this one guy who unexpectedly has this little moment of integrity. Mm -hmm. I I really like that scene, Mm because there isn't a lot of integrity in this movie. (laughs) No, not at all. No. Okay, so then we go to plan B. Right. Uh, So there's another columnist at that same restaurant that sort of overhears the argument between Sydney and Leo. Yes, this is your old friend Larry Tate from Bewitched. Larry Tate from Bewitched. (laughs) So Sydney sees another angle um, and he knows that Larry Tate has a taste for the ladies. And so he basically says, if I can get you a night with a lovely woman, then can you place this item, this sort of blind item about a uh, lame guitar boy? And Larry Tate's like, yeah, we can do that. Sure. <laughs> uh, Just the contrast there, too. Right, like, exactly. He has no integrity. He didn't take any convincing really at all. And so he brings him back to his apartment. Right. Rita, Rita has gone to Sydney's apartment to wait for him. Mm-hmm. And he shows up there and she opens the door and she's happy to see him. And then Larry Tate steps out from behind yes. him. And her face just falls. Sydney, I don't do this sort of thing. What sort of thing? This sort of thing. You need him for a favor, don't you? Well, so do I. I need his column tonight. Didn't you ask me to do something about your job? Don't you have a kid in military school? You're a snake, Falco. Honey, he's going to help you. I mean, it's just a heartbreaking scene because she's just, he gaslights her and, you know, it's like, I'm trying to help you and you don't, you know, how dare you sort of look this gift horse in the mouth and, you know, how many drinks is it going to take you to do this, basically. And she says, she says, I don't do this kind of thing, Sydney. This is not, he's pimping her, literally. Yes, he is. And, you know, your son is in military school and you're going to need the money and... She's very good. Rita's very she good. Is. Yeah, she's heartbreaking. So yeah, it's it's probably it's well not probably it's definitely the worst thing in my opinion that he does in the film. And she goes along with it. She does it. And this is this is like what are we a third of the way through the movie at this point? <laughs> We're not that far. Mm-hmm. It's pretty early for him to be so irredeemable. Mm-hmm. But it works. So he gets the piece he wanted mm-hmm. in the guy's column, mm-hmm. which says that. What are you calling him? Lame. Lame guitar boy. Lame guitar boy is both a pothead and, and a, a communist. communist. <laughs> so he gets fired from his job. And then the manipulations here between he and JJ become complicated. Yes. Because the goal is for JJ to look like to Susan. He had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. And in fact, he's trying to help mm-hmm. while simultaneously destroying this guy and breaking them up. Yes. And that pretty much works, too, because Sydney manages to weaponize the kid's integrity. Mm-hmm. What has this boy got that Susie likes? Integrity. Acute. Like indigestion. What does this mean? Integrity. A pocket full of firecrackers. Waiting for a match. You know, it's a new wrinkle. To tell you the truth, I never thought I'd make a killing on some guy's integrity. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. Mm-hmm. That's that's a great scene where they go, it's at the TV station where Steve shows up. JJ has theoretically saved his job as far as Susan is concerned. And the kid shows up to thank him for that. What he tells JJ is the kid won't be able to accept your help because he doesn't trust you and he hates me. And they just play him until he blows up and... Tells them what he really thinks of them. Right. You were right, Sydney. This boy is a dilly. Why? Because I don't like the way you toy with people, your contempt and malice. You think about yourself and about your column. To, to you, you're some kind of a, of a national glory. But to me, and a lot of people like me, your slimy scandal and your phony patriotics, to me, Mr. Hunsecker, you're a national disgrace. It's kind of brilliant. No, yeah. I mean, I think that, that, you know, there are a few scenes in this film where all of the elements of it 
are working at such a level. It feels like it it should almost be too much, and yet it isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's one of them. So like you said, you know, JJ's at the theater preparing for his TV yeah. show. And so Lame Guitar Boy and Susan and Sydney are sort of walking down the aisle of the theater, and JJ is standing on top of the stage. So once again, it's like JJ sort of looming over this group of people yeah. and, and again sort of showing his sort of authority over their lives. And I think he even says something to the effect of like, oh, it's like a wedding because it's yes. sort of walking down this aisle. And I think the fact that they are in a theater is sort of a funny tongue in cheek space to have that sort of conver- conversation because it's all it's a fucking play. Like it's all yeah. choreographed. Yeah. It's not there's nothing real about what's happening in that conversation, except for, you know, Lane Guitar Boy is the only one thinking that he's having a real conversation. But again, you have JJ seated in one of the seats and Sydney is behind him yet again, sort of like this almost like a parrot on his shoulder, like the, the sort of <laughs> or a demon on or his shoulder. Demon on his shoulder. So yeah, Lane Guitar Boy is sort of reacting to both Sydney being there and like, well, why is Sydney here? And also his sort of indignance at who he knows JJ right. to truly be. And so he can't bring himself to say, thank you for getting me my job back. It really becomes about, you know, his distaste and judgment of them as men. And he's doing it in front of Susan, who is like, well, my brother just got you your job back. Right. Can you just do this so, you know, things can be cool? And, you know, JJ and Sydney, knowing the worst of people was was totally able to play him in that moment and knew that it would just push Susan further away. Like she wouldn't then be able to say, I'm going to continue to see lame guitar boy because he just disrespected my brother. And like, I can't do that. So they were able to get what they wanted. So it's, it's a really fantastic scene. It is. And it's a it's a it's a clever plan. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're pure evil, mm-hmm. it's a clever plan Sydney comes up with. Yeah. And in fact, that's the moment when JJ says to him, "I hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic." Mm-hmm. And he is. It's just it's pure evil. Yeah. Playing on other people being good. Yes. Like this kid has integrity. Therefore, we can take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And it works. Susan breaks up with Steve. I like. The scene where she does that, not the scene itself, not the dialogue, but it's in this, like, empty, greasy little diner, Mm -hmm. which is so far from all of these other places in Times Square and Broadway that we've seen all of these fancy clubs Mm -hmm. full of people and noise. That's just a very quiet scene. Like, that's their world, and they don't belong in that other world. Yeah. So... JJ at this point has gotten exactly what he wanted, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough for him. No. Because the kid talked to him. Yeah, lame guitar boy disrespected him. And he is such a megalomaniac that he basically says, anyone that disrespects me disrespects my, I think he's at like 60 million listeners or whatever. And that just can't stand. Can't have that. So you're going to have to deal with him. And he says, I want this boy taken apart. Yeah. And he tells Sydney to sick. JJ has this pet corrupt cop Mm -hmm. named Kello on the payroll and he says to sick Kello on him Mm -hmm. and this is this is Sydney's moment of moral crisis because he says I won't do it not at the current price (laughs) no he says I won't do it Mm -hmm. he says I won't do it for anything I won't do it for all the money in the world JJ it's one thing the way you adore Kello when it turns into a noose I'd rather have my freedom the man in jail is always for freedom Except if you'll excuse me, J.J., I'm not in jail. You're in jail, Sidney. You're a prisoner of your own fears, your own greed and ambition. You're in jail. You're blind, Mr. Magoo. This is the crossroads for me. I won't get Kello. Not for a lifetime past on the polo grounds. Not if you serve me Cleopatra on a plate. Sidney, I told you. J.J., I swear to you on my mother's life, I wouldn't do that. I won't do it. He says, I won't do it even if you let me write your column. And there you go. There's and JJ says, I'm going to take Susan to Europe for a couple of months. Who do you think is going to write my column while I'm gone? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you're not giving Sydney any points no. for his Because, again, we always knew what he was. <laughs> we were just negotiating price. And now we found the price. The price was being able to write a column for three months. Yeah. So, no, he doesn't get any points for that. No. He feels bad about it, though. That doesn't matter. He still goes ahead and does it. <laughs> That's worse. You know that it's a terrible thing you're going to go do and you do it anyway because you want to be a success. So he slips a few reefers in the kid's coat pocket. It's also just ridiculous that this is all about wheat. Like, it's just like... (laughs) Well, it's... A different time, I know. 57, yeah. So it's just like, that's ludicrous. Well, the whole thing sort of is because it's... It really is such an insular space of, like, the level of the sort of weight and seriousness. It's like, these are... 
These are gossip columnists. Like, it's just... <laughs> but insanely powerful, in- apparently. Sure, I mean, it apparently, is. Apparently, yes. But it's also just, like, it's it's silly. Like, it's just, it shouldn't... Like, it's the absurdity that this is the level at which we're operating in a space like that. It is, but I, I don't remember what article I was reading. Something I read was saying, the only comparison we have now is to the Fox News mm-hmm. guys. Like, mm-hmm. uh... Kennedy and Tucker Carlson. Right. Mm -hmm. Or one of those guys who is just so insanely powerful Mm. and amoral and corrupt. Sure, yeah. But has millions and millions of people who believe every word that comes out of their mouth. Yeah. That's basically who Walter Winchell was Mm. in the age of newspapers. Mm -hmm. And that's basically who J.J. is. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It seems like such a silly thing, but it's... Yeah. This is high power world. Yeah. So Sydney plants the drugs on lame guitar boy. He gives Kello the sort of nod and says, okay, he's, you know, he's going to walk out of the bar soon. And he'll have the drugs on him and, you know, you'll find him. And they do. And Kello and his fellow cop beat him up pretty bad. Sounds like they beat the shit out of him. They he's don't in the kill hospital. him, but he's yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. And that's it. Sydney is now on top of the world. And this mm-hmm. is where we get, there's a brief scene of him celebrating. Very drunk because yes. he feels bad. Yes. But celebrating. And I think this is where we get the title of the movie. Yes. And then he gives a little speech. He's going to start a perfume or some sort of fragrance line, yes. and it's going to be called Success or something. Success, yes. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he gets a call to go to JJ's apartment. Yes. He thinks from JJ. Mm-hmm. And this is where we need, so we need to talk about how this ending unfolds, because I think it's a little ambiguous. Okay. So he gets to the apartment. JJ is not there. Susan is there. Mm-hmm. A little, little depressed. She's in the middle of a full-on nervous <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> She's in a slip and her fur coat, and she's standing on on the balcony and basically just sort of berates her for being so broken. You know, Susie, I've heard this woman talk before. Why don't you start growing up, huh? Start thinking with your head instead of your hips. Uh, By the way, I got nothing against women thinking with their hips. That's their nature. Just like it's a man's nature to go out and hustle and get the things he wants. Susie, look at yourself. You're 19 years old, just a kid, and you're falling apart at the seams. You tiptoe around on those bird legs of yours, nervous and incompetent, with a fatality for doing wrong, picking wrong, and giving up even before you start a fight. Takes the tack of tough love in a moment that probably didn't call for Tough love or contempt. Yeah, yeah. I... We can talk in general about the treatment of women in this movie, mm. but... So, yeah, she tries to jump off the the balcony. But he grabs her, pulls her back in. So he is on the bed, just shaking her and, and yelling at her. And conveniently, J.J. walks in in this moment. And what he sees is Sidney trying to sort of force himself. Yeah. And he, J.J. has said earlier in the movie, if Sidney ever came anywhere near my daughter... Yeah, I'd, like, I'd, break a bat over his head or right. something like that, yeah. So I think I think the question here is, did Susan arrange all of this mm-hmm. on purpose? I mean, I think she did. Um, she says something like, you know, before she tries to commit suicide, she says something like, you'll be, so-, you know, JJ will be sorry right. and you'll be sorry because what do you think JJ is going to think? Right. You, th- you think you've won, right. but you're going to be the guy who forced yeah. his beloved sister to kill herself. That's right. what she tells him. So I think there was a little bit of, you know orchestration on her part i don't know that she thought all of it all the way through but i think she thought you know i'll get him but i'll kill myself and but was the plan to actually kill herself that's Mm. my question it's a question i don't know i mean i think and i haven't read the short story but i blame who wrote the short story has said in his ending she was more manipulative Mm. she was more cunning that this was kind of her coming of age where she she was taking control and she was going to manipulate mm-hmm. and get revenge on Sydney. I think the movie is more ambiguous than that as to whether she's improvising where she was going to kill herself. And then when she couldn't do that, she saw the opportunity to go another way with it. I don't know. Well, she does say so. So when she finally leaves, which we're jumping ahead a little bit, she says, like, I'd rather die than stay here right. with you. So I do think that there, at some point, the plan was to, to kill herself. Right. And then maybe, yes, it did change sort of when she saw the circumstances change. But when, when J.J. comes in and 
starts beating Sydney mm-hmm. for putting his hands on his sister. She lets him. She lets him. She yeah. doesn't say he just saved my life. Yeah. She just acts like yes, he was trying to he was trying to hit on me. Yeah. And she doesn't confess that she actually was going to kill herself until after mm-hmm. JJ has sicked Kello on Sydney. Yeah. So she does get her revenge here. Yes. And then yeah, she she walks out. Mhm. Into the sun. Which is her revenge on JJ. In her ratty coat. (laughs) You don't sound like you think she and Steve are going to have a a great life coming out of this. No. Steve's going to become a heavy drinker when his (laughs) career doesn't take off. And she's going to, you know. They may have babies and she's going to get fat and resentful. (laughs) She's going to wish he had that coat. That's not cool. It's going to happen. That's what happens when you run away with a lame guitar player. And Sydney gets beat up at the very very least. least. We don't know. Possibly jail. Possibly jail. Possibly dead. Yeah. Not going to be right in JJ's column. Not going to be on top of the world. No. Not going to be bathed in success. No. He's pretty much ruined at this point. Mm -hmm. So does anybody come out of this movie well? I mean, theoretically, Susan does. She, you know, this is a film that takes place. You just said she's going to be poor, fat, and Well, that's my projection. Um, (laughs) You know, she, the the film takes place mostly at night. There really isn't anyone, any of our characters really move much during the day. And, you know, Susan leaves and she steps out into the sun. Like, she literally steps out of the shadow and into the sun of Times Square. So I think that's supposed to be, you know, a nod to her being free from her brother and moving into a life that you know, is maybe a little bit more rooted in integrity and decency, etc. So I guess, you know, Susan comes out ahead in the film <laughs> with no money. With, with no money. And, and a raggedy coat. <laughs> but love. That's that's cute, sure. <laughs> You're more cynical than the movie. I, I'm not, well, no, I'm just, you know, love don't pay no bills. So... <laughs> And that, so that's that's the story. That is the story. All right. So what haven't we... We haven't talked about the dialogue very much. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite lines? Mm-hmm. There's so many good lines in this movie. There are a lot of good lines. And it really is a testament to the acting and, again, sort of the entire energy of the film that they don't come off so just heightened and ridiculous. Because yeah. it really... When you read them, it's ridiculous. Yeah. A.O. Scott has said this is a, a street vernacular that no one in New York has ever spoken. No. But everyone wished they could. Yeah. So there's the phone call that Sydney makes to JJ when he initially thinks, like, oh, I've got, you know, lame guitar boy. He says something like, Cats in a bag and the bag's in a river. The cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> no one says that, but okay. Cats in the bag and the bag's in the river. And then... I also like he says, wait, when he calls him at one point, JJ answers and says, you sound happy, Sydney. Why are you happy when I'm not yeah. happy? And then there's... That scene back at 21 with the senator and the the PR agent and he's and uh, JJ says says something about like everybody knows Manny Davis except Mrs. Manny Davis, which I just thought was a nice little. Yeah, I mean there there are some just really great lines in the film. Oh, Steve, lame Steve, has mm-hmm. one good line. Does he? Yes. When they're in the TV studio, he says of Sydney, he says, when he dies, do you think he'll go to the dog and cat heaven? Is that a good line? That is a good line. Because he's, he's JJ's pet. That's what he is. He's the lap dog. I don't think that's a good line. <laughs> it's a lame line for a lame man. Okay. You just do not like white jazz musicians. <laughs> What about the music? Do you like the score? Score was really good. Score is great. Yes. And apparently it was the drummer? Yeah, the Chico Hamilton quintet. That was a real group. Chico Hamilton was a real. He played with Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Lena Horne and Billie Holiday. Yeah, he was the real deal. See, that's who she should have been with. (laughs) Right. That would have been a much more interesting pairing. And the cinematography in this movie is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, I love the opening scenes where it's, you know, crowded. It's the middle of Times Square. Mm -hmm. And just shooting in the middle of Times Square is insane to begin with. But Sydney is just sort of moving through this crowd and we keep losing him behind other Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And it's that that feeling that this is just, you know, one New York story. Like there's just one guy in the crowd that we're following and picking up on. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. So coming back to the question of... The overall morality of this movie. 
and I said I'd talk a little bit more about the background. I'm not going to get into it a lot. There's a there's a good article by Sam Kashner called A Movie Mark Danger in Vanity Fair that I'll link to in the show notes, where he goes deep on the background and the production of this movie. But what comes out of it is that Lancaster and his production company, this, this was not a bunch of good guys. Mm-hmm. And this Ernest Lehman, the... The original writer, he said, basically, I wrote this story to atone for some of the bad things that I did when I was a press agent. <laughs> and in making in getting involved in this movie, I felt like I was surrounded by evil again. <laughs> he said they were the most corrupt group. I really sank into the depths when I decided to work with them. They were apparently incredible womanizers. Mm-hmm. Layman has said that he witnessed a meeting with the producers in Lancaster where they were talking about who they could hire to be the official procurer of women Mm -hmm. for the production. Mm -hmm. Um, He said he turned down junkets to like Acapulco to go whoring with them. (laughs) Lancaster already at the time had a reputation for being predatory and for being abusive Mm -hmm. to women. And everybody was afraid of Lancaster. Elmer Bernstein, the composer... Quoted as saying, the combination of people on that movie hacked the producer. Lancaster Odets was a snake pit. Bert was really scary. He was a dangerous guy. He had a short fuse. He was very physical. You thought you might get punched out. So he was playing the type? He was, to some extent, playing the type. And that's where, I said it earlier, Lehman ended up leaving the movie. His stomach problems, like it stressed him out too much. Mm-hmm. He ended up quitting the movie because it was like, I can't yeah. deal with this anymore. Yeah. But this is where I come back to, to that question of, is the movie judging these guys or is the movie like rooting for these guys a little bit? Because the other thing Lehman said was, you know, he said, I seem to have been surrounded by evil, but he also said they were the only ones that had a great affinity for this script. Hmm. Like they dug it. Nobody else did really. The film could only have been made by them. Mm-hmm. Is that... Because they related to it, because they were... I mean, it's an evil movie to some extent. And so, do you need a bunch of evil guys to make an evil movie? <laughs> that delight in that sort of cookie full of arsenic side of this that much? Well, I don't think so. I mean, who was it that said, you know, it's called acting, my darling? Or my dear boy? <laughs> Olivia, yeah. So, theoretically, if you're an actor, you should just be able to play the part and not be the part. You know, you shouldn't have to be an asshole in order to play an asshole. <laughs> sure. Um, but I think it's, to a certain extent, this is going to sound terrible, but it's white men in the 50s in Hollywood of immense power and privilege. So, yeah, they were probably not... Oh. I'm sure there was, and Amazing I'm sure it was worse than this. <laughs> like, but I think that's I think that's one of the reasons this film bombed is because people were not used to seeing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said earlier that Lancaster and Tony Curtis had these images that were much happier mm-hmm. than this. And that was a lie. And their fans right. didn't like seeing right. this side of them. Mm-hmm. Other studios didn't want to make this script because, again, it's just too dark and too cynical and maybe too honest mm-hmm. i mean i don't think you have to go far from this world to hollywood right i right. think there's probably a lot of crossover there sure for these kinds of guys in hollywood so i don't know i mean i i think it's just interesting because i don't know if in 1957 someone else would have made this script mm-hmm. if the script could have come out of other circumstances than that i mean that that Rita scene is about as dark as yeah. movies get now. Forget 1957. Yeah. All right. Well, so you enjoyed this movie. Sure. Would you watch this movie again? Uh, I may stop if it were, you know, <laughs> or flipping channels and I saw this. I, I may stop for a minute or two. Sure. Okay. We call that a win around here. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Unenthusiastic Critic. Nikia, this November episode is running a little late, so we won't have a new episode the first week in December. But we'll be back December 8th with, as our sacred tradition demands, the first of four Christmas-adjacent movies. The sacred tradition? It's a sacred tradition now. Okay. In the month of December, we like to... Don't say we... Watch movies that take place during the holidays or otherwise refer in some oblique ways to the season, but which actually have bugger all to do with Christmas itself. (laughs) And first up is a film that won Cher and Oscar, though her co-star, one of your favorites, the inimitable Nicolas Cage, Mm -hmm. was criminally robbed. Norman Jewison's Moonstruck from 1987. Yay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've heard that Sierra's great in it, so <laughs> I'm sure that... And you're such a Nicolas Cage fan. I am so far from being a Nicolas Cage fan. I do not understand the Nicolas Cage thing. I really don't. I, I Yeah, I don't. Maybe we'll talk about this next week. Okay. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can find additional episodes, subscribe to the show, leave us a comment, or make a donation to support our work. You can also find us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. The Film Noir Foundation calls it the vivid commingling of lost innocence, doomed romanticism, hard-edged cynicism, desperate desire, and shadowy sexuality. There's a Film Noir Foundation? There is a Film Noir Foundation. What do they do? Do you know? I do not know. Okay. My guess would be to, you know, celebrate and promote and preserve the Film Noir legacy. It's hyper-specific. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I could look them up. I could look up their mission statement if you like. I, I'm sort of interested now. <laughs> Maybe some of those dollars you send to, you know, Black Lives Matters, you can just reroute them to, to the, the Film, Film Noir, Noir Foundation. Foundation. Dedicated to rescuing and restoring America's noir heritage. There you go. A nonprofit public benefit corporation created as an educational resource regarding the cultural, historical, and artistic significance of film noir as an international cinematic movement. It is our mission to find and preserve films in danger of being lost or irreparably damaged, and to ensure that high-quality prints of these classic films remain in circulation for theatrical exhibition to future generations. Okay, that's super important. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can't decide if this is a slam or a plug, what we're doing right now. It's not meant to be a slam. I think it is. Well, okay, so the Film Foundation, since 2005, (laughs) the Film Noir Foundation has saved the following films. Cry Danger, The Prowler, (laughs) Try and Get Me, exclamation point, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. The Man Who Cheated Himself. Then they've done new 35 millimeter prints of a number of films. Okay. I am I am happy they exist. I've not seen any of those particular movies. They probably weren't available before the Film Noir Foundation rescued them. Okay. All right. So that's what that is. <laughs> that was a tangent. <laughs> this is what happens. I plan these things and then I just never know exactly how this conversation's going to go.